five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. My guest this week is Adam Trumpour. Adam is a concept designer at Pratt & Whitney Canada by day and a rocket developer by night. He develops liquid propellant rocket engines, occasionally consults on the subject, mentors student rocketry groups, and is chairing the Space Launch and Rocketry Track at the Canadian Space Commerce Association's SmallSat Symposium in Toronto this week. Today we're going to talk about launch vehicles, with an emphasis on small launch vehicles. But first, a word from our sponsor, MDA. MDA is an internationally recognized leader in space robotics, satellite antennas and subsystems, surveillance and intelligence systems, defense and maritime systems, and geospatial radar imagery. Founded in 1969, MDA is recognized as one of Canada's most successful technology ventures with locations in Richmond, Ottawa, Brampton, Montreal, and Halifax. MDA is a Maxar Technologies company. For more information, visit mdacorporation.com. Okay, welcome Adam to the SpaceQ podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Before we start talking about small launch vehicles, what did you think about the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch last week? Oh yeah, um, I think probably like just about everybody, I was uh, I was watching that live, and uh, I, I must say it was it was just beyond stunning. It's almost unheard of to to have a, a new booster pull off a, a nearly flawless mission on its first launch. So that was incredible to see. And I mean, the b between the uh, the payload of, uh, of Elon's cherry red Tesla Roadster and the t beautiful tandem landing of the two uh, booster stages, um, yeah, it, it was just stunning. So as a rocket designer, did anything about the launch or launch vehicles stand out to you other than the payload? Well, I mean, uh, cl clearly this is uh, the the largest uh, launch vehicle currently flying um, by by a pretty comfortable margin now. So that was th that was impressive. Um, but uh, the, the the landing of the uh, the boosters was was really remarkable. I couldn't uh, agree with you more. As a matter of fact, it, it almost seemed like it was science fiction from a movie or something. Yeah, and it, it was. It's interesting because. The, uh, the the folks at SpaceX have, over the last few Falcon 9 launches, really started making this look easy. But uh, something about seeing you know the both of them landing in almost perfect sync uh, was was pretty remarkable and unlike anything that I've seen before. So I mean, my my hats are off to uh, to the team for sure. And I'll just throw this in uh, without mentioning a name, but. Uh, one of the people who was critical to uh, writing the software um, that uh, does all the calculations to make that booster land is actually a Canadian. Yeah, we uh, we find ourselves in a lot of places. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about you. How did you become involved in developing rockets? Uh, long story, but uh, I think I, I think I probably started getting interested in space when I was about six years old, and I'm I'm fortunate to have the the most supportive family in the world, and um, I kind of graduated from space Lego, and then I think when I was about seven we discovered model rocketry, and so my parents got me my first model rocket kit, and I, I don't think they quite expected the. Uh, slippery slope I was heading down at that point. But uh, over the years, the rockets just kind of kept getting bigger and more sophisticated. And uh, I ended up uh, going to school and getting a degree in the subject. And at the same time as I was finishing my undergrad at uh, U of T, the X Prize competition was in full swing. And so I found myself volunteering with a, a local uh, Toronto-based X Prize competitor. And so that really got me 
back into rocketry in in a very serious way on a, on a scale that I'd obviously never been able to uh, to achieve by myself. Um, and when I finished my undergrad, uh, by that point the X Prize had been won by Bert Rutan and Spaceship One, but um, a core of us engineering types from the X Prize. Uh, team decided that we'd stick together and start a company and see if we could make a go of the whole rocket business. And along the way, we did some you know, really cool stuff. It never quite reached the point of paying the bills, but I did find myself going back to uh, to school and doing a master's um, on rocket propulsion. And along the way, we also did some contract work for the Canadian Space Agency and were involved in the last major study that uh, the CSA and DND commissioned to look into the feasibility of developing a Canadian space launch capability. And since that time, I've been continuing to plug away on the rocketry uh, with whatever disposable income I can scrape together. And uh, I've built up a, a fairly sophisticated liquid rocket uh, propulsion R&D capability and uh, all the equipment and uh, support infrastructure that goes along with that. So it's been uh, endlessly fascinating and I, uh, I enjoy it uh, tremendously. What was the, the name of the XPRIZE team that you were on in case our listeners want to look it up? That was the uh, Da Vinci Project. Okay. Um, okay. So since opportunities are few and far between for rocket development in Canada... Why are you still here and not in the U.S. or Europe? Well, no, that's that, that's a fair question, and certainly a lot of uh, a lot of Canadians do tend to find that they they need to um, move abroad to be able to pursue what they're interested in. Um, for myself, I think there there are a couple components to it. I mean, the the United States is very difficult for any foreign nationals who want to work in in rocketry um, just because their their ITAR regulations make it not quite impossible but very nearly so the path to doing something like this in the states tends to involve either getting a PhD in the subject um, so that you become a world authority uh, in the subject enough for them to you know go to bat and for you and fast track a green card um, or else move to the state start the path to citizenship and then hope that once you've achieved that you can actually get a job in the field that you're interested in so it's it's not easy to do that Europe is a bit more accessible to uh, to Canadians but I think uh, ultimately, I've uh, I, I've been really happy with what I've been doing here in Canada, and I'm I was fortunate uh, after I completed my masters to get hired almost right away by Pratt and Whitney Canada, working on uh, gas turbine propulsion, which has been I mean a phenomenal experience and uh, a job that I really enjoy, and I've also been finding that between that and working on rocketry in my spare time and now increasingly mentoring student groups, um, I guess I'm not quite uh, ready to, uh, to give up on, uh, on my home country yet. And I, I feel like I can still do some good here and hopefully help other Canadians who are interested in this to see that it's actually not impossible. We're going to talk a little bit of policy. We're, we're going to go into some of the student aspects of it because it seems to be a change going on in Canada. We're going to talk spaceports and all sorts of fun things here. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the first questions I'm going to ask you is, what do you think about the government policy in Canada that we don't need our own launch capability? Yeah, and that, that that's an interesting one because in in, in a sense, it's not, it's not an actual policy, but it's sort of a de facto one. Um, it certainly worked out that way. And one of the strangest things about it is that to some extent, it goes back to a misunderstanding of the uh, the Chapman Report, which uh, was released in the mid-1960s and was sort of the, the cornerstone foundational document for Canada's space program. And for a very long time, there was this common perception that, that Chapman said, thou shalt not build rockets. Um, and that that belief really seems to have stuck and become very persistent. But uh, in fact, Chapman didn't say that. 
Um, it the report did recommend against developing larger launchers, you know, along the lines of the uh, the Atlas or the Thor. Um, but uh, it also recognized that in the coming space age, the ability to guarantee your own nation's access to space is kind of foundationally important. And so the Chapman report recommended very strongly that Canada should begin developing an entire industrial base for launch vehicle technologies and initially focus on a small launcher for for smaller scientific satellites. Um, but then down the road, if it was deemed appropriate, we would have the necessary in-house experience that we could start working up to, uh, to larger vehicles if that proved necessary. And to this day, as far as I know, that recommendation to begin building up industrial expertise for space launch technologies is the only recommendation of the Chapman report that was not eventually implemented. Okay, we'll get back to to that in a minute. Um, but uh, I wanted to, to touch base on on the university side of things because this is in part uh, seemingly one of the drivers that seems to be happening right now. Um, it seems that uh, universities today across Canada, there's a renewed interest in rocketry. Would you say that's a fair statement? I, I think if anything, that that's an understatement. Um, over the last few years, just the, the the explosion of interest that I've seen from students coast to coast has been just unbelievable. Um, and I think there are there are a growing number of teams um, from universities across the country. I think we're, we're at around 20 of them now, and many of them are doing some seriously impressive work. There are some who are uh, getting into very sophisticated avionics, um, composite airframes. Others are building hybrid and even liquid propellant rocket engines. So it's the, the enthusiasm that I'm seeing among students is kind of unreal, and it, it's really gratifying to see this. And and this is without really government intervention or support. I would you say? Yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely right. I think that uh, in, in a sense, you know, in Canada, we don't have the luxury of being able to go and intern at SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin. Um, but in spite of that, if you look at what the Canadian rocketry teams have been pulling off. It, it, it's quite remarkable. So there's there's a big competition uh, every year in the United States called the Intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Competition. And over the last several years, Canadian teams have been um, winning a disproportionate number of the top honors at this competition. So it's they're proving very, very consistently that in spite of the relative lack of support here in Canada, um, we can be among the best in the world. And so it, it kind of makes one wonder, you know, where this could go if there were actually a little bit of support behind us. And I think the, the Canadian Space Agency is actually making some efforts to, to be supportive at this point. But um, do you think this interest, is it really driven by the fact that uh, these students have followed SpaceX as it's come along, uh, and now Blue Origin and other companies, is it all being driven by what they're seeing uh, in the marketplace? I, I think that's almost certainly a big uh, a big part of it. You know, call it the SpaceX effect. But for you know, for a younger generation who's growing up now, you know, many of them are barely old enough to even remember when the space shuttle was flying. But for them, they've been coming of age watching. Companies like SpaceX landing Falcon 9s on barges and then the Falcon Heavy uh, today. So for, for them, this is almost like an Apollo-type moment for them that's really making space relevant and, and uh, immediate and exciting in a way that uh, they've really never seen before. So you're mentoring students now. What do you tell them about the opportunities that might exist? You know, it's, it's always... A challenging subject because the reality is it's not easy, and you know no one no one obviously wants to tell anybody to uh, to give up on their dreams or anything like that. And I am I'm, I'm the last person on earth to ever do that because I still haven't. Um, but 
I, I do tell them that, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. And so you've got to understand that if you're, you're passionate about doing this, you've got a difficult road ahead, but it's a difficult road, but it's not an impossible one. And I think the most exciting thing that we're seeing because of companies like SpaceX and Rocket Lab and uh, a growing number of others is that, you know, you don't actually need to be a major global superpower to pull something like this off. You don't need to have billions of dollars to build a launch vehicle. And, you know, even private Companies um, based largely out of small countries like New Zealand are actually able to do this. And so I think there is hope for those who are willing to keep at it and really push. So, yeah, you bring up an interesting point, which is that if you're going to build a rocket like SpaceX is doing the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy, those are larger rockets and, you know, heavy lift capability rocket in, in the Falcon Heavy. Uh, those rocket programs have costed, uh, you know, combined over a billion dollars. But if you're yep. talking small programs to develop a small satellite launcher, which is uh, definitely something that's very uh, sought after these days, uh, like you said, Rocket Lab, which is a company that actually grew out of New Zealand, is also based in the U.S., launches from New Zealand, but also has um, uh, an agreement to launch out of uh, Florida, uh, Kennedy Space Center. I mean, how much money do you think a company like Rocket Lab has uh, spent to uh, develop their small satellite uh, launch vehicle at this point, just roughly? I, I think the the order order of magnitude is probably you know, some somewhere a little bit under a hundred million dollars. That that's usually give or take um, what what the ballpark seems to be for small launchers, and you know it depends a little bit obviously on what you include. Um, if you're developing a whole host of infrastructure to go along with it, then that tends to uh, you know in, increase the cost some, but. Uh, that, that's probably about the right order of magnitude. And would that figure include the launch facility, which is quite small in New Zealand? Uh, yeah. So for, for Rocket Lab, I think actually one of the things that's probably uh, been a real benefit for them is that they own their own launch facility. And it's, you know, it's a small kind of minimalist facility that's well suited to their vehicle. And it means that they don't need to contend with, um, you know, the scheduling surrounding somebody else's launch range that you know one might have to deal with if you were trying to launch out of Canaveral or Vandenberg or other sites like that. Yeah, and that that's actually one of the advantages of actually launching from New Zealand is that well, <laughs> the range isn't really too much of a problem. Um, but, exactly. But one of the things that, that you mentioned there in terms of price. This is exactly what Elon Musk told me several years ago because uh, I knew him before he actually had started SpaceX and we chatted about what would it take to develop a small launch vehicle in Canada and at the time he had said $100 million but that wouldn't include the actual uh, launch facilities. So that <laughs> jives very close to, to, to what you said. So. Let's actually talk a little bit about launch capability in Canada or in this, sorry, not so much launch capability, but um, spaceports. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to go into the history of it because um, it's history, uh, but we used to launch uh, sounding rockets in Canada, uh, but we're actually going to talk about something that's happening now. So there's a company called Maritime Launch Services. That's right. Um, they are... Uh, uh, several Americans who have come up with the idea that launching out of, in this particular case, Nova Scotia, and they're not the first ones to, to think of that, uh, would be a, a great idea. They're actually, uh, from what I understand, the, the best way to think of them is not so much a rocket company, but a infrastructure company that's building a spaceport and that has made an agreement with um, the Ukraine to launch uh, a medium class launch vehicle from their location. So that's right. Um, and they're also hoping to break ground this spring after their environmental assessment review is done and they've closed their first round of funding. What do you think of the venture? 
you know, obviously, uh, I'm I'm supportive of anything that brings you know more opportunities in rocketry to Canada. I think that you know having a spaceport in Canada is obviously going to be a necessary condition if we want to eventually launch our own rockets. And so having that infrastructure is useful, and I think it's probably also going to spur thoughts on the regulatory aspect as well, which is also important. You know, how how does the government approve a rocket launch? Um, so having all of this in place is going to make it easier for anybody who wants to uh, wants to develop launch capabilities down the road. Um, so I applaud it from from that perspective. I mean, obviously, I think that um, importing Ukrainian rockets is not ultimately going to satisfy Canada's needs for uh, for a launch industry. It's certainly not going to help all those students who really want to be able to get involved in this here in Canada. And so I would hope that um, the uh, MLS project increases the uh, the opportunities for maybe gradually building up um, more of an industrial base in Canada for, for rocket and launch vehicle technologies and helps to start normalizing the idea that, yes, we can absolutely launch rockets here. All right. So a lot of Canadians don't know this, uh, but we actually used to launch sounding rockets, or they can be described as research rockets that are suborbital. They're not orbital. Um, and I won't get in, like I said, I won't get into the history of, of all of that, but I will say this. The company that um, originally built the Black Brant was Bristol Aerospace. That yep. was, Bristol was then acquired by Magellan Aerospace, which is a, a large aerospace company in Canada that focuses more on the uh, aviation side than on the space side. Um, and uh, that rocket, or the initial uh, Black Brent rocket was uh, developed 56 years ago. Uh, since 1962, the rocket has flown over a thousand times with a 98% success rate. The company is still marketing the rocket. It still manufactures the rocket. They just don't launch from Canada. Um, from what I understand, current government regulations make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to launch even a suborbital rocket in Canada. Um, what do you think about that? And do you think that the government is uh, at the point now where they're going to finally uh, update regulations to make this uh, possible? I, I, I certainly hope so. Um, I think it, it's tricky in a sense because it r regulations, if they're done right, can actually be a major competitive advantage. But in order to do them right, you need to understand what good, streamlined, efficient regulations for rocket launches would actually look like. And so in in a country where we've never really had to deal with this before, um, it makes it doubly important to, to try to understand this so that we don't make the mistake of over-regulating or doing the wrong thing and, you know, killing an industry before it even uh, has the chance to get started. Um, Right now, I think for, for rockets, one of the things that we deal with is just the fact that the process to approve a rocket launch is not terribly well defined because it doesn't really come up all that often. And so that can, that can be a good thing potentially, but it can also be a bad thing um, if somebody just happens to feel that uh, rockets are scary or shouldn't be launched um, – you know, somebody applying for a launch license doesn't have any recourse to say, well, I've demonstrated everything that I needed to demonstrate. Um, so that that makes it challenging um, on the one hand. On the other, the other aspect of it, I think, is that in Canada for for what we would what would be termed amateur rockets. So if I built a rocket or if a student group did, um, which right now is where there's really quite a large amount of interest. Um, the process for approving a rocket like that is quite problematic. And you can end up with a situation where regulations are designed with something like, you know, a, a black brand in mind that uh, would be 
um, launched by a large corporation. But regulations that might be appropriate for someone like them, probably no student or amateur is going to be in a position to comply with that or to provide you know millions of dollars of insurance coverage or anything like that so it it makes for a very challenging and quite uh, quite murky situation for anybody who wants to launch rockets in Canada right now it, it at best there's a lot of uncertainty okay so uh, recently Japan modified one of their small sounding rockets to fly an orbital mission carrying a small satellite to orbit yeah. Um, this week, the Canadian Space Commerce Association is hosting uh, the Canadian SmallSat Symposium. Um, small satellites are really hot right now. Um, there are several Canadian companies that are looking to build constellations of small satellites, including, uh, you know, longtime uh, industry stalwart uh, Telesat, but also new companies like Kepler Communications. Yep. What would it take to modify, say, a Black Brant, if it could be, to fly a small satellite to orbit? Okay, so I'll, I'll and, and without getting to... into too much technicality. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give a slightly cagey engineering answer to this. Um, it's people actually have looked at uh, doing this, and there was a startup in the late '80s that that did um, try to look into using. Um, Bristol Black Brants and other rocket motors as, as a platform for a small orbital launch capability, um, what they call the Orbital Express project. Um, it, the problem with doing that is they, as they found, the the Black Brants were really marginal for for that application. Um, it was they were also finding that. It's not a simple matter to take a whole bunch of individual pieces, particularly rocket stages that were never designed to uh, to work together, and strap a bunch of them together, and then stack more onto the end. The uh, you know the flight dynamics get very complicated. Um, the aerodynamic loading gets very complicated. And as as SpaceX found when they were developing the Falcon Heavy, you know, it, it might seem on the face of it that just taking a bunch of existing rockets and putting them together is fairly straightforward, but it, it really isn't. And even if you can make it work, the other part of the question is the business side. You know, would would a launch vehicle that was made from a bunch of strapped together Black Brant derivatives actually be a cost effective vehicle that serves the uh, the market well. And so can you come up with something that will put a satellite in orbit is sort of a different question than can you come up with something that'll put a large number of satellites in orbit sufficient to make a business case close um, and, uh, and do this for uh, – an amount of uh, non-recurring engineering by the company that they feel is worth their while. So th those are sort of different questions, I think. Okay. Um, now, if we had a small satellite launch vehicle, um, do we need an expensive large spaceport for this? Or could a small spaceport be built at a reasonable cost uh, to launch uh, this launch vehicle or to launch satellites in Canada? Small satellites for for small uh, for small launchers. I mean, I I personally am a fan of keeping things small and uh, and nimble. Um, so, like, I I think that portability is a really good thing. The ability to maximize the number of places you could potentially fly from is very useful. And obviously, like, to take it to the extreme, the space shuttle had incredibly costly infrastructure requirements that came to be a significant cost driver for that entire program. So obviously we want to avoid something like that. I think there's probably a, a, a sweet spot in between, but I think that smaller spaceport is probably, probably what's ultimately going to make the most sense, at least initially for you know, when you're talking about small launch vehicles. And uh, obviously, Nova Scotia has already been identified as a good location 
to uh, launch vehicles from. And there's actually a couple of uh, locations within Nova Scotia that have been identified. One was on mm-hmm. Cape Breton Island, and one of them was, um, oh, and I'm forgetting the name now. Um, uh, Kenso, I think. Kenso, that's right, the Kenso yep. area. So what other uh, locations in Canada uh, would be ideally suited for, for launching? Um, you know, it, it depends on what you want to launch. Uh, Nova Scotia is, frankly, a really good location because if you're launching to the east, like you often will, uh, you've got a huge downrange distance, which, which is exactly what you want. Um, you'd mentioned earlier on that uh, we had a sounding rocket launch facility in uh, in Churchill, northern Manitoba, on the the coast of Hudson Bay. So that that's another place that uh, often gets brought up when people are talking about possible launch sites. Uh, And there was actually a company in the 90s called Actuate Aerospace that got started trying to reactivate the Churchill site and turn it into the world's first commercial polar uh, spaceport. Uh, And that would, would have been a reasonable site uh, for polar orbiting spacecraft, but for anything that uh, wasn't going to a polar orbit, uh, not not so much. And I mean, the other challenge with Churchill is that the logistics of getting up to the Arctic are problematic, um, whereas Nova Scotia is definitely a little more accessible. Are there any West Coast uh, locations that would be good? And when I say West Coast, I should say uh, Central Canada, like Alberta or Saskatchewan, uh, along with BC. Um, Central Canada, I, I I guess it it probably depends. the 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 tricky thing that you always run into is you need to have enough downrange distance so that when when rocket stages are dropped off, they're not going to fall on inhabited areas. So it, it tends to be easier to, uh, to to make that work if you're somewhere coastal. Um, the West Coast, you uh, you could probably um, find a place to launch from fairly easily. Um, the uh, the U.S. of course launches out of uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in in California. Um, again, that's the sort of place that would be more practical for a polar launch. Okay, um, so one last question, sort of related to this, before we get into. Uh, some more policy questions. Um, let's say somebody developed a small satellite launch uh, vehicle in Canada. Do you think there's uh, a market for it? And, and when I say a market, um, would there be a domestic market for it or would it be primarily a international market? Um. I, I think I think there would be both. I I think it, it's difficult to make the business case work for just the Canadian domestic market, and I mean historically that's always been one of the stumbling blocks that we run into when talking about launchers. And certainly the you know, the Canadian government has often taken the position that the CSA as a launch customer just doesn't launch enough on an annual basis to sustain that kind of capability. Now, if you're talking about something on the smaller end for, for smaller spacecraft, um, there is a, a clearly a growing demand for, for small spacecraft um, from, from companies like Kepler, as you mentioned, from, from universities, as well as the CSA and increasingly the Department of National Defense as well. So, there would uh, there would certainly be some some domestic demand for it, but I think that when it comes to the business case, there there would likely need to be some uh, some capturing of uh, markets outside of Canada as well. And as Rocket Lab has shown, that is definitely something that's that's possible. Um, yep. Uh, it should also be pointed out that, it, you know, this is 2018. This isn't the late 90s. The market, the technology, everything is has changed. Um, well, that's, that's just it. Yeah. And it's um, – I, I think people tend to often still think of rockets from like the lens of the 1960s. And the reality is we're not in that situation anymore. You know, costs have come down. It's possible to build small, low-cost spacecraft. 
Um, and it's possible to develop launchers at a small fraction of the price that it ha- that has been done in the past. And companies like SpaceX and Rocket Lab have proven that. And, and it should be pointed out there's a lot of companies that are trying to get into that small satellite uh, uh, launch market. But the reality is, is that other than Rocket Lab uh, in that space, there really isn't anybody who's actually launching anything at this point uh, for that's specifically targeted for for this. I mean, we have medium lift capability, we have heavy lift capability, we have uh, India's uh, PSLV rocket, which will certainly, which is a you know medium capability rocket, which will launch a hundred or more uh, uh, small satellites at a time, but it's not a small satellite launcher. Um, So uh, definitely it looks like at this point that if there was a Canadian company that were to come in there that was credible, that uh, actually built something, that there actually could be, and and there's a lot of studies out there right now that say, you know, how many satellites are going to be uh, built over the next uh, several years, small satellites that is, so there's definitely looks like uh, there's a possibility of building a business case now, much better than there used to be. Long yep. term, we don't know, but in uh, definitely um, uh, in the short term. Now, before we get on to the rest of their uh, questions, we're going to put a little product placement here for Space Q. <laughs> um, so um, people may not know this, but there are three products that Space Q uh, has. Uh, the f- one that they would think of naturally is the podcast, if you're listening to it. The uh, the other one is the website where you read, read our news on uh, every day. And the other product, which most people tend to or don't think about too much as a product, is our newsletter. And the reason why I say that is because our newsletter actually has content that we don't publish on our website and analysis that's also included in it. So, Adam, do you get our newsletter? I do indeed. Okay, great. So for the rest of you who don't get our newsletter, um, just go to spaceq.com. There'll be a link on the homepage, and you can just sign up from there. All right, back to our questions. Uh, And here's a big one for you. (laughs) Do you think the time is right to develop a small launch capability in Canada? Yes, I I absolutely think it is. I think think, uh, it's been a long time coming. But uh, I know I think this is definitely the right time for it. And I say that partly because I'm a strong believer in the concept of a holistic space program. I think that, you know, if if we acknowledge that space is important and the things that we have in space are important, then the ability to physically get them there is kind of foundational. And the reality is that when you're relying on other countries to launch your, your spacecraft, this introduces a lot of risk and a lot of uh, the potential for circumstances that are just outside your control. Um, we ran into this with Radarsat 2. We ran into this with um, spacecraft that were slated to fly on Russian rockets until Russia annexed the Crimea and it became politically uh, unappetizing to uh, pump uh, large amounts of money into the Russian economy to launch spacecraft for us. So the reality is that when, when you don't have the ability to launch your own things, this is what you open yourselves up to. And at the same time, I mean, clearly, as, as we talked about earlier on, the, the enthusiasm for this from Canada's young people is just unbelievable these days. And the reality is, you know, you were asking me about staying in Canada. For a good number of these people, um, if they don't have an outlet to do what they want to do here, they will be forced to either leave the country and go somewhere where they can do it or conclude that the thing they want to do is never going to happen. And frankly, both of those things are absolutely tragic. And I don't think that uh, if we are serious about you know, trying to be a nation of innovators, I don't think this is a situation that uh, that should be allowed to continue in Canada. Uh, you, you bring up a, a good point there. So, and I want to uh, expand on it a little bit because what are, some of our listeners may not know, uh, when, and which you briefly mentioned, is that you know when you launch, when you want to launch a satellite, you have to get onto a launch manifest of whoever it is that you're, who's going to launch your rocket. Uh, 
If we don't have launch capability in Canada, that means that we have to outsource it to another provider. Uh, in the past, we've outsourced it to the United States, we've outsourced it to Russia, we've outsourced it to India, and this year, for the first time, we had a satellite launch on a Chinese rocket. Now, what people may not realize is that, and you mentioned the, the Russian one, where a Canadian payload or satellite was pulled from a Russian launch, we had to reschedule that launch, it would then launched on an Indian rocket, but it delayed the program by over a year. What are, and then you also mentioned RadarSat too. What people may not know is that that was actually, we were on a US launch and that got yeah. pulled from that. And we had to actually go out and do that as a commercial launch. Um, and the other thing that, um, the other one that people may not realize is that the Cassiopeia satellite, that mission was launched on a Falcon rocket, but it sat on the shelf for years waiting for the launch. So you're at the mercy of politics, uh, launch manuf manifest for, for these countries. So uh, things are definitely getting better, but uh, there's still issues with that. And so that brings up the question, at least from the government side, you know, is it a strategic need to be able to put up a Canadian satellite, whether it's an Earth observation, uh, military satellite, communication satellite. Um, these are definitely some things that need to be considered when deciding or not um, should Canada have launch capability. The commercial side is the commercial side. That's a totally different thing altogether. There's no doubt if there was commercial launch capability in Canada that the government would be a customer. They wouldn't. They, why would they not be? Um, yeah. Now, if Canada is to have a launch capability, should it be a government project? Or should it be a private-public partnership, or should it be strictly a commercial venture? I'm uh, I'm a fan of the what we could, might call the SpaceX model, where you know the uh, you you let the private sector take lead, but these things realistically are never purely private ventures. Um, SpaceX benefited greatly from a U.S. government that was for the most part, fairly sympathetic to what they were trying to do and had put in place a regulatory framework that helped to facilitate it. Um, NASA had its uh, uh, commercial cargo program where they effectively said that if any U.S. company can offer us launches of cargo to the International Space Station, we will help invest in that uh, – in developing that capability and we will provide – um, a customer for that service. And so that was really helpful in managing risk and making the business case close. So there are a lot of things that a government can do to help facilitate this because at the end of the day, you know, developing a launch vehicle is a relatively risky endeavor. And risk tends to be a, a scary thing to potential investors. And so working creatively with a proactive government that's willing to do that, I think, is going to be important. I think that private industry should probably lead something like this, but it it's going to need the, uh, the backing of a supportive government that's willing to take a, a whole-of-government approach to how to support this and how to help facilitate it. Innovation has been a big uh, item on the government's agenda. Um, should the government of Canada help kickstart a small launch vehicle program with uh, a private company? Yeah, I uh, I definitely think it should. Um, the, the the question, of course, is what the right way to uh, to do that is likely to be. I think that there are there are probably realistically a number of components that th this could involve, um, but. I think increasing technology development funding for people working on launch vehicle technologies would be a real plus. Even just having an explicit national policy that said that you know the the Canadian government recognizes that Canadian launch capability would be a good thing because right now we have this situation where 
even if I, I happen to have $100 million that I wanted to invest in starting a rocket company, it's not at all clear that the Canadian government would view this as being any more desirable than you know if I were to start up a factory to make boxes or, or anything else. I'm sure you know they'd like the job creation aspect of it, but there's nothing to say that this is in any way considered to be a, a particularly good thing for the country. And, and so I, I think that uh, they – having some more clear signals of support would go a long way. And that would include updating the regulatory environment so that it wasn't in the way. Uh, there would still be regulated, but it, you know, Canadian companies could try and, and try and, and make a, uh, make a go of it. Um, Absolutely. And, and engaging with, uh, with Canadian stakeholders in this to try to understand what the regulatory, uh, environment should look like so we focused on small launch vehicles um because that's where uh, it, it seems to be the 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 right way to proceed at this point but do you think there's a need for canada to have a medium class launch vehicle other than let's say maritime launch services offering that service to canada but an indigenous uh, medium class launch vehicle and what about uh, large or even heavy lift capability like the space and spacex falcon heavy or should we just leave that to whenever we need to rarely put up something that big we, we just outsource it to to somebody like spacex I mean, obviously, um, I, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of more rockets for Canada, and I would I'd certainly love to see SpaceX North here, but um, I'll I'll temper that with a, a certain amount of realism and say that uh, you know we we've got to start somewhere, and probably starting with a Falcon Heavy is uh, not not the right entry to launcher technology. Um, having said that, I think that uh, it would be very much in Canada's advantage to start building up the expertise and then, you know, down the road, if some smart uh, group of Canadians figured that they could develop, you know, a new medium or heavy lift capability at, that would be competitive with uh, what SpaceX or anybody else are offering, then I am totally all for that. So I, I just had another thought, which... Um uh, some of our audience, especially the younger audience, won't, won't really clue into. But there used to be a program in Canada called the Avro uh, program. And uh, at the time, this is in the 50s, Canada was building what could be argued one of the most advanced fighter planes in the world. That's right. Um, that program was canceled, uh, not for technology reasons, not for uh, funding reasons, but for political reasons, um, because basically our neighbors to the south said, mm, we don't really think that you should be doing that. Um, and you can argue whether that was a good idea or not uh, to have the program. But one of the effects was, is that we lost a lot of capable talent that that went to, to the U.S., um, and actually, a lot of that talent became instrumental in the uh, Apollo program for, for NASA. So, and this is a hard question uh, to, 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 to sort of to, to wrap your head around, but thinking longer term here, not short term, longer term and where space flight fits into what's going to happen in the future, not just for Canada, but for the rest of the world. Um, are we making a mistake by not encouraging uh, Canadians, students, young people to get interested in rocketry so that not today, but down the road, we ha like you say, we, we develop that capability. And if there's uh, a market, if there's a need, and, and it looks like that we're launching more and more uh, uh, payloads to space, that Canada will be well positioned to be uh, uh, a player in that area? Uh, or do we just say no and leave that to somebody else and potentially see that talent leave? No, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously the, the Avro Aero um, brain drain that followed its, uh, its cancellation was one of the, the biggest 
well, it's one of the biggest job losses in Canadian history and certainly one of the biggest one-time exoduses of top talent that the country has ever seen. And it's it's arguable um, whether we've ever recovered from that. Um, But the reality is that while a lot of people are familiar with the Avro Arrow and uh, the, the ensuing tragedy from that, the reality is that every day when some of our top students and some of our most uh, talented individuals decide for whatever reason that they can't do what they want to do here in Canada, we, we kind of have a mini Avroero moment all over again. And the reality is that's got to stop. Um, I think that any students or any other Canadians who are so passionate about something that they're willing to, you know, go and try to start their own uh, rocket building enterprise or start a student rocket team in spite of a total lack of support for it. This needs to be encouraged because the kind of determination uh, that it takes to do that is not something that we want to lose for this country. All right. And now I'm going to throw another one at you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've talked about uh, launching payloads, satellites, um, what about launching humans? Is there, do you think there will ever be the day where it will be advantageous for Canada to have a launch vehicle that was human rated so that we could launch our own astronauts into space? Oh, uh, now, now you're just, uh, tempting me with more flights of fancy. <laughs> um, I, well, I, hey, for sure if love I remember correctly that. with the X prize, uh, with your project in particular and a few others that, you know, that was one of the things. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, our, when I, uh, when I came out of the, uh, the, the X prize experience, um, my, uh, my group of, uh, cohorts and I were, were thinking specifically about uh, rocketry for what at the time seemed like this great, exciting, up-and-coming space tourism market. Um, I, uh, I'd certainly be, uh, be all for some kind of uh, human launch capability in Canada. Um, I don't know uh, when we're going to be at the point where, uh, where, where that's going to be realistic to, uh, to achieve, but I think it's absolutely possible. And I think that, uh, I would never want to, uh, want to rule anything like that out. So let's talk about something that's a little bit more realistic then. Um, SpaceX has shaken up the market or disrupted the market. That's that's the buzzword these days. SpaceX has yep. disrupted the market, and they've done so by uh, not exactly reinventing the wheel because um, rocketry is rocketry uh, at this point. That could change down the road. Um, but just by doing it better than everybody else, but also they have been innovating, and they've been innovating to try and bring down the cost of launch by instead of throwing away that first stage or the second stage, by actually capturing, and even the fairing, they're trying to, 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 to bring back and to reuse, but by reusing components and eventually the, you know, the whole rocket is what they're trying to, to achieve. But they've been innovative in being able to, to start with, you know, landing those first stages, reusing those first stations, those nine, you know, Merlin, uh, sorry, um, yes, those nine Merlin engines on that first stage of a Falcon 9, I mean, those are expensive. You throw those away, and that's why rocketry is so expensive. So um, if there is a new, if there is development of a new small satellite launcher in Canada, and not just Canada, but let's say everywhere else, shouldn't and this is already going on in China, where the Chinese government has allowed some private space companies to start uh, building companies in, in China. One of them in particular is, is working on reusability. Are all, rocket com- uh, are all rocket companies in the future going to have to work on reusability? 
I, I think uh, at you know at at this point ev- everyone needs to very strongly consider it for sure. There there have always been kind of two schools of thought on how to build cheap launchers. There there's the school of thought that says, well, you know, if you threw away the airplane every time it made a flight, then clearly the cost of air travel would be prohibitive too. Um, so obviously reusability is the right way to go. Um, there's also the uh, the big dumb booster school of thought that says don't invest all that extra money in trying to make something that's reusable. Focus instead on how to make something that's cheap and throwaway, and maybe that'll be the uh, the most cost effective way to go. Um, I think the, the the jury is still somewhat out on which is ultimately going to be the the right way to do it. I think that probably down the road there's going to be a continued move towards reusability. Um, making that work from an engineering standpoint probably is going to require people to think a little bit differently about how they design rockets, and you know trying to start with something that's not reusable. And add in reusability is not always as easy um, as as it might seem. So it's uh, it's a bit of an open question right now. What what makes the most sense? But I think that uh, people really do need to uh, need to think carefully about reusability. And I think that's only going to become more true um, down the road. So uh, normally I, I might not voice an opinion on this, but I will this time. <laughs> Wearing my business hat, it just seems to me that um, with the, and SpaceX has proven this to me, that, you know, put enough brain power behind something, um, you know, you can solve the equations. I mean, yep. even as recently as a couple of years ago, before SpaceX actually landed the first uh, um, Falcon One stage, and let's not forget that was on a on a barge in the middle of the ocean. Uh, let's just assume it was on land, or actually, no, was the first one on land? Uh, the, the the first successful one was on land. Okay, so I mean, even before that, uh, and, and not too far before that, they were saying not going to happen. Yeah, Impo- absolutely impossible. You can't do it. Okay. SpaceX has now proven over and over and over again that it can do it, okay? So to me, it's not about you can't do it. It's about how can you do it better? And how can you do it so that you really do reduce the cost of launch? And from a business perspective, it just it seems to be a no-brainer to me that, you know, if you're going to develop a launch vehicle, and I understand a small launch vehicle, the equation's a little bit different, and you certainly don't have the money to get into that. But I think that because of the technology, because of uh, what we've learned, um, that it can be replicated, and and it's going to be replicated uh, by maybe not in the, you know, in the next five years or so by many companies. But I think, you know, you look 10 years from now, uh, 10, 15 years from now, and every single company, in my opinion, is going to be uh, trying to do that reusability. All right. Um, so last question. Um, do you think rocket development in Canada has a future? I, I think there's no question that it does. And I, I think that um, both with the, the trends that we're seeing around the world, I mean, just look at this past week, how with uh, w- with the launch of the Falcon Heavy, um, all of a sudden everybody is talking about rocketry in Canada in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. So there, there's definitely a growing awareness of it. Um, everybody knows Elon Musk. Everybody knows SpaceX. Um so it, it's increasingly hard to overlook. And I think that as long as there is a need to uh, to launch things into space, and I think, frankly, that that need is not decreasing, it's increasing. Um, and as long as we have enthusiastic, interested Canadians who feel passionate about this, um, Rocketry is going to be in demand in this country in in some way or another. It's just a question now, I think, of getting a government um, and a private sector that are aligned on this and willing to seriously start taking steps to uh, to help this to happen in a more coordinated way. 
And I'll just add as a, as a final thought that there's no doubt that um, rocketry is here to stay and that we need to launch payloads into space, even if it's just for Earth observation, because Earth observation provides us with so much useful data as we're learning, and there's so many more n- new uh, uses of the data that, that we're coming up with that are helping people here on Earth on a daily basis that uh, uh, it's not going away. All right. No question. Yep. So I want to thank uh, thank you, Adam, for being a guest on my podcast, and uh, I hope uh, we'll get you on the show uh, again sometime in the future. My pleasure, Mark. Uh, always happy to. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. We're on Twitter with the username at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and podcasts on our page at The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.